For too long, the history we've considered America's has really just been the history of European conquest. Today's guest argues that there is no American history without its first indigenous inhabitants. He's historian Ned Blackhawk, this week on Story in the Public Square. Hello and welcome to Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. And I'm G. Wayne Miller, also with Salve's Pell Center. And our guest this week is Dr. Ned Blackhawk, author of the landmark book, The Rediscovery of America, Native Peoples, and the Unmaking of U.S. History. Ned is the Howard R. Lamar Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University, where he also coordinates the Yale Group for the Study of Native America. And we should note, Ned won the Frederick Jackson Turner Prize from the Organization of American Historians for his 2006 book, Violence Over the Land. Ned, congratulations on all of your success and this tremendous accomplishment, and thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Well, so uh, the rediscovery of America is, I think I mentioned to you before we started, I think maybe one of the most important books that we've actually discussed on story in the public square. For the audience who maybe has not yet experienced it, could you give us just the broad overview of the book and what it accomplishes? Um, thank you for that kind recognition. Um, uh, this book um, uh, reflects two general um, important developments. Um, one, in, and it's uh, conveyed in the title, uh, The Rediscovery of America, really in the last 25 years or so, the study of American history has taken uh, a really dramatic new turn and um, a whole generation of scholars, myself included, um, have worked to unfashion or refashion central dimensions of American history and brought Native American history um, really to the center of numerous fields of historical inquiry so uh, deeply that really you can't think of certain subjects in American history the same way anymore. Uh, so that's the kind of subtitle of the book, uh, How American History Has Been Unmade. Um, corresponding with that rediscovery, um, the second kind of big uh, influence upon this formation of this project is that there hasn't been yet a single volume interpretive synthesis or overview or an attempt to bring together all of this kind of scholarly profusion. And so uh, this book um, was, um, kind of generated by that need uh, for classrooms or for uh, popular uh, reception. Um, it's an attempt to uh, offer um, an overview of Native American history, and it's by no means comprehensive, but hopefully um, points us towards a common um, future together that includes rather than uh, excludes Native peoples. Well, its, it's scope is ambitious, and I, 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 you know, what my principal takeaway was that you can't really talk about American history without talking about Native American history, that they are completely intertwined. Why, though, in so many other accounts, is the Native story and the Native experience excluded? Well, that's a really um, important and really vast question, um, and it goes really to the core 
of much of American historical practice uh, since the field of American history really was institutionalized uh, shortly after the Civil War. Um, some of my chapters kind of explore some of the, these themes of what we might call uh, U.S. intellectual history. Uh, when in the aftermath of the Second World War, uh, of the Civil War, um, numerous uh, American academics and intellectuals started looking for those distinguishing characteristics of North American history that make American history different from Europe. And in that process, Native peoples became the antithesis of the American subject, the antagonist of the Central American protagonist, often seen as a cowboy or individual settler or pioneer. Um, Indians have always been the obverse of the subject of American historical inquiry. And so it's been hard uh, up until recently for U.S. historians, teachers, educators, popular um, uh, practitioners to really know this subject in a kind of comprehensive or detailed way. So, Ned, what do we gain by putting Native populations back into the narrative of the American experience? Um, you know, we gain a, a deeper understanding of not just the facts or the accurate rendering of American history, but I think we gain a closer appreciation of certain American truths. And we really can't continue to live um, under uh, sets of historical falsehoods that have so long pervaded our understandings of America and American society. We're stuck with the kind of inherited paradigms of previous generations and now even centuries. Uh, we have in particular at times a kind of binary black-white, uh, a myopic binary for understanding uh, American race relations that really has no place for indigenous peoples at the heart of the American uh, national experiment. So we get, you know, a, a more accurate rendering of our continent's deep, deep historical texture and uh, one that forces us to see beyond our received categories. We could do a whole show on, on the question I'm about to ask, and, and we're not going to, obviously, but maybe you can give a, a relatively brief answer. What is the origin of these falsehoods? I'm guessing it goes back to when Europeans first arrived here, and there were many different... Go ahead. Make that um, suggestion, and there are uh, uh, a series of popular orientated works kind of in, in process at the moment that are suggesting that uh, the real origins of American or the hidden roots of American racism, according to one study, lie with the initial doctrines of discovery that the Spanish developed in concert with the Catholic Church uh, to create sets of legalistic rituals for claiming possession of territories previously, uh, as the doctrines know, uh, state, um, uh, outside the ownership of Christian um, owners or leaders. So um, Native peoples are in many ways the sediment upon which conceptions, not just of America, but really of the Western Hemisphere have really uh, been established. And to unpack and unravel and really fully re-examine or rediscover um, these subjects will require an awful lot of energy and labor, but labor and energy that are really worth the um, uh, the effort. Well, Ned, you know, I, if, if I'm remembering this correctly, at the very start of the book, you set out that encounter 
is a better paradigm for the initial contact between uh, the white European settlers and the native populations than is discovery. Could you help us unpack and understand what those two different paradigms for understanding that moment actually represent? You know, it's really hard to um, maybe make sense of these things in the kind of abstract. So maybe if we kind of think of it in a certain kind of contemporary or kind of a more um, lived experiential way. Uh, it, if we think of American history as a history of discovery in which in- individuals largely or exclusively often of European ancestry are um, exploring and discovering and naming and claiming possession over and then populating and then governing. If we think of those as the principal um, actions or chapters or moments of American history, we participate in the erasure and marginalization not only of these actual histories, because there were obviously many other peoples present and engaged and a part of these processes that we've called discovery. But we think of this as a process of encounter. We can see the, you know, the textures of, of history much more kind of clearly and in the kind of sense of the kind of um, more experiential, we can understand that these are still lessons to um, uh, kind of understand and deploy in the present because these paradigms and categories of discovery um, still remain active law. Uh, the doctrine of discovery that I just referenced or alluded to um, still animates American law and policy. Um, and so we're stuck in a certain way with these inherited, not just categories of analysis, but narratives that have um, often in, uh, influence upon uh, legal and policy d- discussions that um, still uh, um, are at the heart of um, this field known as federal Indian law. And still in in the popular culture as well, I mean, there are still people who look to Columbus as the person who discovered America. And I remember as a, during during my childhood, my education, that was the only narrative that I heard. Obviously, later I, I learned that the, the, the truth of what happened. Um, you cannot talk about this history without talking about the impact of disease that Europeans brought to this nation. Talk about that. It had a devastating effect from coast to coast on native populations. Right. This is one of the central um, features of this new generation of scholarship that has made the study of demography and uh, uh, the catastrophe of epidemic encounter at the heart of the early American landscape. And I have just a, a very short kind of sentence or two um, in the introduction kind of that gestures towards these subjects um, in which I realized and um, uh, was really kind of struck to um, make a really simple observation um, that the loss of American Indian life following European contact is the single most tragic and life costly um uh, experience in American history, broadly speaking. Uh, the continent of North America had approximately 8 to 10 million people at the time of European contact, 1492. By the time of the American Revolution, that number has almost halved to 4 million or so. And, and then that includes the vast majority of those four are non-Indigenous people. So 
this kind of staggering historical reality rooted in studies of disease and warfare and captive taking, uh, which are at the heart of some of these early chapters, um, should be uh, the foundational um, stories we tell about the origins of America rather than celebratory narratives of individuals um, uh, often lost in unknown uh, for them uh, territories. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard multiple times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at JMLutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist and the author of 20 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is Dr. Ned Blackhawk, the Howard R. Lamar Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University, where he also coordinates the Yale Group for the Study of Native America. His most recent book, The Rediscovery of America, Native Peoples and the Unmaking of U.S. History has been hailed as a, and I'm quoting, landmark. So Ned, hand in hand with the, the devastating impact of epidemic was violence perpetrated against Native populations. And that, as I said, had a devastating effect as well. Can you talk about that a bit? Uh, yes, and there's a kind of... Um somewhat of a simplistic narrative that has formed in the aftermath of some of these studies of disease that has kind of held that, well, Native Americans lacked immunity to so many uh, European-based um, childhood-bearing or influenced diseases that they subsequently um, vanished or disappeared in large number. Uh, many tribes and communities actually responded relatively well in the kind of general sense to some of these initial epidemiological encounters but it was the subsequent challenges of European um, invasion or captive taking or introduced forms of warfare that kind of registered uh, the continued devastation that the diseases themselves established. So up in um, uh, what became uh, uh, British North America or New England, um, indigenous populations endured waves of pathogens before as well as after Plymouth, uh, or settlement in 1620. Uh, there were very large epidemics in uh, the 16-teens, uh, in the early 1630s, that were central to the establishment of English colonization across the region. And so while our national myths in many ways uh, celebrate or recognize really exclusively English settlers as the kind of first Americans, often um, they were engaged in a settlement process that had uh, deeply both um, epidemiologically destructive but also violent um, effects because many English settlers, as you may know, began, or it's in chapter three of the book as well, um, um, started using the kind of deteriorating conditions of resident native lives for their own advantages and began a series of campaigns to uh, displace uh, once powerful native people. You know, Ned, I, I, th I think that a lot of the power of the book is that you're exposing a history that uh, maybe we've caught a whiff of, 
but didn't fully have the full appreciation of it. So I'd like to get into maybe a couple, two specific areas to talk about how what our popular conception might have been and then how your uh, synthesis of the latest research really draws us into a deeper understanding. So the first thing is the, uh, inter, the, the interrelationships of native communities and European settler communities, uh, particularly in the British uh, area of North America. Uh, how closely integrated were these communities? What kind of contact did they actually have? Um. We really shouldn't um, see early America the way um, it's generally understood. And there have been a range of scholars, um, as I suggested, who've moved us past some of these paradigms. Um, but it used to be uh, that British North America was synonymous with the early American experience. And within that world, New England was the uh, epicenter. And right. so to know New England was in many ways to know America or early America. And then we're still uh, left with national holidays and sets of kind of metaphors about Puritanism that really um, are um, uh, in a certain ways unhelpful for understanding the broader continental wide history of the early American experience. Indigenous peoples were so central to the formation of all European settlements and societies in the Americas. Um, that we've lost a real appreciation of that kind of historical interaction. Um, and I pay particular attention in uh, chapters five and six to the centrality of indigenous peoples during the crisis of empire between uh, uh, France, Britain, and the early republic itself, and try to highlight what I call the indigenous origins of the American Revolution that shows that indigenous populations were central and key variables in the growing crisis between England and its colonial subjects. Well, and that's, that was actually the second issue that I wanted to get to. So the, the French and Indian War in North America, the Seven Years' War uh, in Europe, you characterize it as the principal conflict in American history, uh, which I think is a, a different interpretation than most of us learned in our grade school understanding of American history, early American history. Why is it so central in this reinterpretation? Um, I'm drawing upon uh, uh, the award-winning study of a very famous Harvard-trained historian by the name of Fred Anderson, who wrote a monumental study of the Seven Years' War called Crucible of War uh, that uh, was published, you know, um, now almost 20 years ago, uh, or roughly 20 years ago. And uh, Anderson calls the Seven Years' War the uh, most important uh, 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 conflict of the 18th century thereby emphasizing the uh, connectedness between the Seven Years' War and the subsequent American Revolution. And up until that point, I don't think any uh, historian had ever so boldly uh, tried to reperiodize or reconfigure understandings of the revolution, which in many, which as we may all understand is the kind of crucible of, if not American history more broadly, certainly of the 18th century world. So it, there, uh, chapter four ends with this uh, monumental conflict. Uh, chapter five begins in its aftermath. And chapter six on the Constitution really also kind of, kind of continues seeing how the crisis of the interior portions of Eastern North America, um, which had kind of beguiled both the French and British empires throughout the early 18th century, um, really is the um, defining 
a kind of challenge of of uh, much of the early republic's uh, world in developing land policies um, like the Northwest Ordinance, developing kind of constitutional structures for incorporating Western lands, for developing kind of political forms of dealing with indigenous nations therein, um, as the Constitution also does. These are central features of American history that we've been insufficiently um, taught, and they come out of this multipolar world in which indigenous peoples, first as allies of the French, second as uh, subjects of the British government, third as then allies uh, often with the British against the American settlers, uh, are one of the key um, constituencies fighting in a series of what we should see as kind of connected global conflicts for control of Eastern North America. So how do some of the giants of American history fare when we consider them through the prism of the history of indigenous populations? And I'm thinking, I I could throw out a number of names, Abraham Lincoln, for example. Um, I... I write about Lincoln um, at some length in uh, my chapter on the Civil War um, that tries to take a, a larger perspective of the conflict between the North and the South. It starts with the Colorado Gold Rush in the 15, 1850s um, and with the emphasis, as uh, scholars uh, have seen, uh, with the major transitions that are happening in, form, in terms of kind of technological uh, and infrastructural development. Um, the Colorado Gold Rush uh, brings over 100,000 people to Colorado starting in the late 1850s. Um, and they're all brought by horses or they walk on their feet. They may have seen trains in their lifetime, but they certainly didn't take them to get there. Um, and that's the world in which Lincoln himself becomes president. And in these kind of famous moments in American kind of histories of infrastructure, um, um, uh, Lincoln uh, is on a train. Uh, he's taking four or five trains with different gauges to get to New York City to give his famous address uh, in, at Cooper Union yeah. um, in 1860. And uh, by the time the Civil War ends, he's on only one train traveling at five miles an hour uh, back to Springfield for his um, solemn um, a burial. And so that history of infrastructure is in many ways uh encapsulates this kind of dramatically transformative moment that the Civil War heralds. Um, And no one, Lincoln himself, the Native peoples of Colorado, the gold rush uh, seekers in the mountains uh, west of Denver, none of them would have anticipated that type of uh, dramatic transformation at the time the war began. And so the emphasis in that chapter um, is not on trying to you know, vilify or uh, demonize any individual um, leaders, but to kind of put the policies that unfolded during the Civil War in some perspective. And there are roughly 100 battles or wars between uh, federal or state-funded, federal or federally-funded state militias uh, during the long Civil War era that includes uh, conflicts across uh, the West during Reconstruction. Um, and Native peoples are uh, the principal um, uh, um, casualties across most of Western North America. Exi- aside for a small number of theaters um, along at Glorieta and other places west of the Mississippi, 
uh, the federal government's fighting Indians for uh, the vast majority of, of the Civil War and its aftermath. And so Indians should not be seen as outside of these narrative conflicts, nor should the leaders of the federal government, including Lincoln, uh, be seen as people not participating in various forms of Indian policy. And so I contrast the way historians have kind of seen Lincoln's standing as someone who held the union together, who authored the, uh, wrote and author, or authored and delivered the uh, proclama- Emancipation Proclamation. And I contrast how he, as, as he was doing these things, he, was, he and his administration were also doing other things, which included uh, the forced removal of indigenous peoples from places like the Minnesota River Valley of, of southern Minnesota uh, during the Dakota War including the largest mass execution in American history at Mankato in December 1862. So there, are, uh, we could talk about the Sand Creek Massacre, the forced removal of the Navajo from the Bosque Redondo or to Bosque Redondo from um, uh, the Navajo Nation, uh, the Bear River Massacre. Um, there are a series of just incredibly catastrophic um, moments of military conflict between indigenous and federal forces that are also part of this larger history. You know, Ned, uh, the, the, the challenge with a show like this is that um, it's about 30 minutes long, and we've got about, you know, three years' worth of conversation that we want to have with you. <laughs> yeah, we uh, do. <laughs> so we've made it barely to the Civil War, and we've got about two minutes left here. You know, uh, if we jump forward, and I, I, the, the, again, the scope of this book, it's 500 years of, of history. Uh, it is rich and it is textured. Um, but I found myself... Uh, I guess, troubled uh, by the end of it um, in, in, in the sense that there's so much violence was inflicted on Native populations. Um, have we fully reckoned with that as a nation? Uh, and if not, what more can we do? You know, I agree with you. And um, one of the things that um, this, these types of conversations often uh, breed is a sense of you know, maybe not quite despondency, but a sense of being overwhelmed or uh, burdened by the past in certain ways. So I think one of the remedies might be um, seeing how in the later chapters of the book, indigenous peoples themselves responded to these incredibly harrowing challenges and developed strategies of organization, um, strategies of resistance and strategies of engagement that in many ways are astonishingly um, underappreciated. Because in the aftermath of these generations, if not at least a century and a half of federal Amer- uh, federal dominion over Indian affairs, uh, throughout much of the mid to late 20th century, Native Americans um, took to the streets, took to uh, um, uh, took to education, and even uh, took to the courts to get uh, agreements upheld and new doctrines established. And uh, we have lived in the last. Uh, you know, throughout my last lifetime over the last half century, through an incredible era of Native American uh, political um, achievements. Um, the American Indian sovereignty movement has become uh, one of the uh, most um, um, transformative, particularly in obviously in Indian country, uh, but um, incredibly successful uh, kind of uh, broad legal um, undertakings that have made some of the most marginal, uh, under-resourced um, and forgotten peoples on the American continent among the most now um, active, at least within their own regional economies and societies. 
Well, um, and you, you, you really can't make sense of contemporary, particularly Western North America, without understandings of these subjects. Well, Ned, it, it is an accomplishment, and we are so grateful to you for spending some time with us today. The book is The Rediscovery of America. He's Ned Blackhawk. That's all the time we have this week. He's Wayne. I'm Jim. We hope you'll join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square.